You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, here with Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hello. Hello, Aaron. Hey, you guys. What you got this week? This week, kind of a special episode. I talked to Alexei Kovalev. Let me rewind from there. Last week was the week before Trump got inaugurated. There was an essay on Medium. The title was something to the effect of To My Doomed Colleagues in the American Media. It was about the time he spent covering Putin's press conferences as a Russian journalist. Um, so I called him up in Moscow, talk about what reporting in Russia is like. He's also now reporting for Russian audiences on American politics. So a lot of interesting overlaps here. Yeah, we don't always get these insights into what it's like to become a journalist in somewhere other than the U.S. Yes, I I wish we I wish we did it more, especially the week that uh, being a journalist in the U.S. is radically different. I was gonna say I, I was gonna say. I don't know if this interview was insta-dated or prophetic or a little bit both, but um, I think it'll be pretty interesting. We're brought to you by MailChimp. As always, they make the show possible. Thank you, MailChimp. Here's Aaron with Alexi Kovalev. Welcome, Alexi Kovalev. Hi, Aaron. Uh, where am I talking to you from, actually? Uh, I'm in Moscow right now, in my hometown. You came to my attention because you published a uh, piece this week on Medium. It's called A Message to My Doomed Colleagues in the American Media. There uh, we go. It was meant as a tongue-in-cheek, and it was penned by an American colleague of mine, who obviously meant it in an ironic sense. Because I don't, let's just get it out there, I don't really think that the American media is doomed, Trump or not. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I understand. I mean, I would say the piece is, I would not call it optimistic, um, but in some ways it suggests that the challenges uh, facing American journalists currently are not unprecedented. This is not the first time something like this has ever happened. So for the, when, when, how did you get into journalism in the first place, actually, is first I'm curious. Uh, okay, I'm, I've been working as a journalist for, uh, let me see, 15 years now. And okay. uh, I started in 2002 as a novice reporter for a local daily newspaper in Moscow and uh, worked my way up the career ladder until I became uh, a senior editor at a state's news agency, Media Novosti, where I was in charge in a, in a website that translates all kinds of articles and op-eds and book extracts and essays 
from th about 30 different languages into Russian. What is the training like for journalists in Russia consist of? Is journalism school a major pathway, or well, it's it's pretty standard. It's uh, there's nothing really special about it there, because um, it's really a trade, not a profession. So I never had any formal education in journalism until late 2000s. Already seven years into my career, and I enrolled in a master's program at City University London. When I graduated, I became an an editor in chief. Uh, of that website at the state news agency. For an American, can you give us an idea of what it means to work for a state-run news agency? What is the connection between, say, uh, a website like that and the state? Uh, how many layers between you and the state are there? Uh, well, it was just one between me and I was literally one handshake away from Putin. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's not a place I'd want to be. Um it may sound counterintuitive, but at the time when I was working there, and I'm, I'm not there anymore, but even though we were working for a state-funded, state-controlled publication, we had pretty high standards. And uh, the government didn't really agree with, with us always, but uh, we thought of ourselves as, as first and foremost jour journalists. But the government officials in charge of you know, micromanaging the media, they had uh, this idea and they uh, still stick to it that if you work for government-funded media, you're not a journalist. You are basically uh, a PR guy for the government. So right. you're not to criticize uh, the government or the president. And your mission is just to uh, take the government handout and make an article out of it without going too deep into the details. Um, so that's the way it works now. Uh, well... With nuances, of course, because I know many very professional and dedicated journalists still working for the, for the agency uh, right. and, and doing a pretty solid journalistic job, even given the circumstances. What precipitated um, you leaving that, that workplace? I think it was a, a confluence of different trends. We were two years into Putin's third term, and they were... Uh, one by one, removing all the uh, uh, little freedoms awarded on us by the ex-president, Dmitry Medvedev. One day we were on our way to work, and we were on the metro, and we found out from Twitter, because everybody else was, was reporting it, that Putin fired us all, 2,000 people from, from, from the agency, fired us by personal decree. He merged uh, a respectable agency, as much as one could be uh, being uh, government-funded, entity, uh, he merged it with, with several other state-owned outlets into one huge conglomerate, which is confusingly uh, uh, called, when translated from Russian into English, Russia Today. Uh, yes. But it's, it has no relation, at least officially, to RT, the TV channel, although they have the same editor-in-chief. This is very confusing ah. and convoluted. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I don't think I understand that any better now that we've said it. So uh, for you as a freelancer, well, first of all, now that you're gone, you're giving an interview like this, you're writing stories uh, to your doomed American colleagues. Mm -hmm. Is there no longer a path for you back to like a, a state run media now? Like is once you're gone, that's kind of not back in your future or a new presidential administration comes in, it kind of wipes the slate clean. 
Oh no, I don't think I'll ever go back there. And <laughs> 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 not, not, not that they uh, are ever going to let me in after what, yeah. I, <laughs> after what I've said publicly. But it was a very illuminating experience and I worked alongside some exceptional people there. I'm happy I was there, uh, but I, I don't really regret going. I'm hedging my risks now. So yes. I, don't, I don't work for one single publication. And if it closes down, I'll still have others. What is freelancing from within Russia like? I know you are working, uh, you publish in English at The Guardian. Uh, you have uh, what appears to be your own site or a medium site called uh, Noodle Remover that you're publishing onto. What is your publishing mix like working as a freelancer? Mostly I'm specializing in um, how this massive propaganda mammoth uh, spending hundreds of millions of dollars every year, how it covers domestic affairs, how it covers the foreign affairs, because that's what dozens of millions of my compatriots consume, and that's what forms their worldview. Uh, yes. Yeah, so there's there's been in the past few months, there's been some explosive interest in this kind of things. But um, I'm also, uh, for, for, for example, every once in a while, I help publications like The Guardian or The New York Times translate their articles into Russian for the Russian audience. And sometimes when you look at the stats, uh, more people actually read the Russian translation than the original article. Because, Interesting. Yeah, because Russians are extremely curious and I'd say even anxious about what the outside world thinks of them. Because the website I work for, which translates the foreign articles about Russia into Russian, is one of the most popular news websites in Russia. Hey, I'm going to pause things here to give you a quick word from our sponsor, Penn State World Campus, which allows you to earn your Penn State degree online from anywhere in the world. Over 125 graduate and undergraduate degree and certificate programs ranked number one for online bachelor's degrees by U.S. News and World Report. So if you are a busy working adult wanting to advance your career or start fresh in a new field, learn how Penn State World Campus can help you reach your educational goals by visiting worldcampus.psu.edu. Penn State World Campus, a world of possibilities online. Again, worldcampus.psu.edu. Thank you, Penn State World Campus. So whether it's your own work or some of this English language work that you're translating and making available in Russia, who reads you? You know, is this a niche audience or is this a dominant audience that's that's following this kind of okay. stuff within Russia? In Russia, the state absolutely dominates the media landscape. All of the major TV channels are either state-owned or extremely loyal because that was the first thing that Putin did, put absolutely all the television in the country under direct control of the government. I would say that maybe 10% of, of Russians combined consume what we call the independent media. So it's it's a um, it's a kind of li a limited. I'm not sure that I would. I mean, the New York Times reach probably exceeds that in America. But if you look at more intellectual magazines, say uh, the New Yorker, I'm not sure you know it reaches much further than that. 
Um, what? So I'm curious. You got fired along with two thousand other people. What is everyone doing? What What became of all of those people who who used to to work in that? Right? Oh, most of most of them just uh, were rehired back. Uh, ah, because okay. it's two, two, 2,000 people that, that, in, that including uh, the entire technical staff uh, sure, sure. and uh, translators and uh, editors uh, and, and everyone. Uh, most of the people working there are, uh, are still working there, but uh, they got a different uh, logo on, on, the, on the press card. Right, right. So this, what you described as is a, a, an explosive interest. Um, I think American listeners understand generally what we're talking about here. And I think the propaganda is probably the best catch-all term. Um, this is everything from uh, written about fake news, uh, how sort of small websites um, publish knowingly uh, often ridiculous news stories, which later filter up to ma major websites and sort of there's a specific life that uh, that kind of publishing can lead. And then uh, we've talked on this show, there's a, um, a journalist named Adrian Chen who was on the show talking about oh, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. troll farms mm -hmm. um, that are operating in various parts of Russia that certainly played a role in the Ukrainian conflict and it appears later shifted the focus to the American presidential election. Without sort of commenting directly on i mean i am i am curious what you think about the specifics but when did you start being interested in in this propaganda machine and, and start studying it uh well i guess it started back when i was uh, still living and working in london around 2010 and 11 for the first time in my life i got a different perspective on how, how i was immersed in the, in the in the uk media and how they operate and i realized that most of the things that we see in the headlines in Russia, they are either misreported, especially when I started noticing how, how the country I was living at the time, how, the, how London and uh, England and, and the UK uh, were being covered in the Russian media. And I started noticing that either get misreported or important context is uh, left out or uh, it's just made up. You know, I was, yes. it just struck me that the news that my compatriots consume uh, consists of so much, well, I'm trying to find a, a more diplomatic definition, but it's just chaff. Yeah. One thing that really just struck me when I was reading a report from another Russian state-owned uh, radio, that UK has become so Islamicized that there were Sharia patrols on the streets of London. Uh, yes, that's yeah. a classic of the genre. Yeah, and I was uh, I was literally I was living next to a mosque in London. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, yeah. was that something that you previously had been suspicious of, and being in England confirmed it? Or I, I guess I'm curious, like how how much people buy into that kind of material from within Russia? No, well, based on my experience of well talking to, to my fellow uh, Russians. And yep. see my family members and uh, the friends. Well, I'd say, let's say, a lot of people buy that. A lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, in America, this story is very new. This is mm -hmm. a story that I think I could have said, I could have described that that sort of fake story as being published in, in news. One year ago, I could have described that, and a, a lot of people would have no idea what I was talking <laughs> about. I mean, no idea that that happens. You know, I, 
older people aren't even really on Facebook. Many of them that I know, you know, these are things that were, this was sort of an exotic idea. How long has this been a dominant part of the media discourse in, in Russia? It's fundamentally different, uh, the, the media industry in Russia to that yeah. in, in the U.S. I'd say about 70% of our media landscape is dominated by uh, either directly state-owned media or extremely right. loyal. Extremely loyal. And I founded my, it's a fact-checking website. It's called The Noodle Remover uh, because there's a very colorful expression in Russia uh, to hang noodles on someone's ears means to lie, to deceive. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's excellent. That actually translates very well too. Uh, yeah, uh, so I'm well figuratively removing those noodles from people's ears because yes. there's there's so much of those that you well, well you're drowning in those noodles. You know what's absurd? There is a, a sizable, although fr- very fragmented, r- Russian-speaking diaspora, but yeah. ev- even people living in Germany or Finland, I can see that on Facebook, they tune in uh, to r- Russian state media. And they start believing this, the stuff they're telling them about the country they're living in. This, 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 is what, this, this is what really absurd. And it's really disheartening to see how, how little it takes for people to start believing in something that directly contradicts their empirical facts that they are directly confronting. The Russian TV channel tells you that uh, the pill is red, but the, the pill in front of you is blue. <laughs> right. Yeah. It has this effect on people that it completely alters the perception of reality. You don't know what's real anymore. Yeah. This week we have sort of this news cycle around a report that the Russian state may have compromised Trump. This is all sort of being uh, reported through this smoke and mirrors of an intelligence agency. It can feel like when you describe it sort of that there's a, a, a fight between sort of truth and fake and and reality and fiction. But um, at least in our limited experience with this stuff in America, it's sometimes very hard to even figure out, you know, uh, what's happening. I really uh, despise the so-called satirical news now. And I don't read The Onion anymore because the the reality is just too absurd for for it to to satirize. Uh, Because you you can see these pseudo-satirical news end up on the Russian headlines and treat it with all seriousness, like this, this is something that has really happened. So you'll find millions of, uh, of people in Russia who take the onion seriously. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, because they, uh, yeah, the, the, context, the context of this, uh, of this attire is just uh, far too removed from their reality for, the, for them to properly contextualize. I know some exceptionally great reporters from the US and, and, and generally Western media working in Russia. But it's nearly not enough uh, to satisfy the informational needs of, of the American public right now. So what I'm seeing now in the, in a, in the past few months, I, I've seen such sloppy and bad reporting in the, in the U.S. media about Russia that my eyes bled, really. <laughs> it really backfires uh, because many of my Russian colleagues are really looking up to The New Yorker, to The New York Times... Uh, yes. But the sentiment I'm seeing more and more on, on the social media these past few uh, weeks or months is that uh, people are asking if these publications, if this you know venerable, uh, one of the most respected publications in, in, in the history of uh, periodicals, if their reporting on Russia is so sloppy, how can we trust their reports from, from Pakistan, for example? 
Right. Uh, yeah. And th this is the sentiment I'm he hearing from my colleagues who are the most critical of the Kremlin and, the, and of Russian propaganda. When you read about Russia from within America, what do you feel like is the most wrong? Uh, well, it's... Um, it's what's wrong with the media in general. It's, it's the th same thing that was wrong with the Russian reporting on on on, uh, on American affairs. Is that yes. uh, you lack proper context and uh, you miss important details, and uh, you have a predefined concept that's uh, completely lacking in all nuances. But that's of course because you cannot cram all the nuances, even if you know them, into into a short article. Uh, yeah. that you have to get out as soon as possible before your competitors do. I'll give you a, a pretty clear example on why context is important. For example, sure. in, yeah, look at the um, intelligence community's report on the Russian intrusion in, in, in influence on the uh, U.S. elections. You, you, you know what I'm talking about. Recently declassified. Yeah, report. recently declassified. As evidence of why Russia allegedly influenced the U.S. elections, they cite a Russian politician who publicly said that he's going to toast for, the, for Trump's victory. They, yeah. And this was cited as, an, as evidence of, of Russia's plans regarding Trump. But the same guy, he's a 70 years old uh, veteran of Russian politics. And he, it's the same guy who once threatened to use uh, gravitational weapons uh, against the United States. Right, and this is what just one of his gems. So you, you, and anyone who knows anything about Russia wouldn't take this even remotely seriously. Whatever this guy says, he's an aging clown. His entire career, his entire thirty years career in politics consists of these gimmicks. His party, very deceptively called Liberal Democratic Party, its policies are neither liberal nor democratic, and uh, it, it can be at best. Uh, described as a far-right populist party. So no, right. nobody, nobody ever takes him seriously, except for the U.S. intelligence community, apparently. So this, <laughs> is, the, this is where bad reporting uh, leads you. Right. And, th and we are really in this, in this situation right now where, when we really cannot afford that. Right. The New York Times has a story, a one story today. I'm dating myself when this comes out, but whatever. Uh, A1 story today where they basically take one of the most popular fake news Trump memes. Uh, yeah. Not meme, fake news Trump stories. One of the ones that received the most clicks on Facebook. Yeah. Crack down the guy who, who posted it. You've seen the story. So in America, that story is almost exclusively reported as, oh, I, this was just a way to make some money. Um, whether it's Americans doing it or it's Romanians doing it, it's usually... Uh, a similar story to like a scammer story. It's like, yeah, mm -hmm. this is a guy who's just trying to make some money online. Mm -hmm. Within Russia, in your own research into this stuff, do you believe that this is mostly a for-profit um, uh, action? It's mostly driven by a propaganda machine or it's a little bit of both? Well, the, the, the story about the uh, uh, fake ballots obviously ended up in, uh, on all major Russian media. Uh, uh, interesting. Yeah, uh, it was reported in all seriousness, and no, nobody, except for a couple of publications, issued a correction or a clarification that this is, this is actually fake. There's no, no, uh, it couldn't be proved. Uh, but uh, it also fit nicely into the image of Trump they are building. Uh, 
that he's he's the victim. He's being persecuted by the mainstream media. Uh, they were almost, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I don't believe they actually tried to insult Trump is that I'm seeing it's it's pretty clear that even if they did try to install Trump as the president of the United States in the Kremlin and the propaganda machine, they don't have a plan. They have no idea what to do now. Even if they did elect them, uh, they had no strategy at all. And I was watching the uh, all the major Russian TV channels uh, in in the run up to uh, to the election, and they were so convinced that Hillary was going to win uh, that they were kind of preempting this by. Uh, you know, collecting all the bits of evidence that the, uh, uh, the that the U.S. presidential elections will be rigged on an unprecedented scale. That's certainly a, a feeling that uh, existed within America as well. I mean, there is sometimes the feeling that the news is being slightly pre-written uh, and that uh, the the shock was genuine. That uh, <laughs> <laughs> no one could fake shock so well. <laughs> Yeah. So even if they, uh, even if the all the uh, intelligence reports are true, and my government did he, did really elect a president for you guys, uh, <laughs> I can tell you for sure uh, uh, that they don't have a plan and they have no idea what to do with it. So, do you think among journalists who who are doing um, what you define as high quality work um, that that certainly exists within America and exists within Russia? Do you believe that there's an opportunity for collaboration um, across those lines, or have those medias already been too closely involved with each other uh, over the last year? <laughs> this is the question I, I keep getting after I penned that uh, that article on Medium: is that what are we going to do? How do how are we going to deal with this uh, president who is extremely hostile to the media? How are we going <laughs> to yeah. cover it? Uh, uh, do you have any uh, suggestions for us? What, what what do we have to do this at, the, at his press conferences? Uh, but given uh, well, based on my experience at covering covering Putin's press conferences, these four-hour long, uh, uh, extremely frustrating, excruciating ordeals, uh, that you don't actually have to do that uh, because in uh, in Russia you definitely do not need access to the Kremlin to cover Putin. And actually, it's a hindrance because if if you have access, if, if you if you belong to this uh, extremely small and privileged group of journalists and reporters attached to the Kremlin, that's a liability because you have yep. to cultivate your contacts in the government, and uh, you don't want to anger them by putting out something critical of them, and you don't want to ge- jeopardize your sources, and nobody ever wants to go on record. It's extremely hard to to cover the the Russian politics with with actual access to the Kremlin because nobody ever goes on record. Uh, but you don't need that access at, uh, at all because all the important stuff is the things that don't say publicly, is that uh, what, they, what they're trying to hide from the public. And that's what you can cover without any access uh, to, to the Kremlin. Uh, you can cover all the, the corruption, the mismanagement, the cronyism. Uh, you can uh, investigate how it, how it just happens that all of Putin's childhood buddies end up being millionaires and in charge of uh, you know s- state companies. You can do all that, but the the, dif- the difference, of course, between Russia and the United States is that you can vote Trump out of office, but we cannot vote Putin out of office because that's not how elections in Russia work. Right. Uh, and th- this is why they aren't really bothered by these uh, anti-corruption investigations. Uh, because uh, they know it's not even going to make a dent on Putin's ratings, you know. Despite all of, all the revelations, his ratings it's uh, is in the 
uh, 96% something. So it's not something you can dismantle way with a few hard-hitting uh, pieces in, in a newspaper that's read by maybe 10,000 people in a country of four, uh, 140 million. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, it's not really believed that most of the reporting on uh, uh, Trump uh, stopped him from getting elected <laughs> yeah. within America. But it does seem this whole round of news uh, about uh, this spy document, you know, all of this stuff, uh, people didn't ignore it. Like, people are interested in America. The uh, the audience for this journalism isn't, like, going away, I don't think, at least immediately. What do you expect to be doing for the next three years or so? Uh, well, there's definitely be a lot of ground to cover because we are stepping into these uh, uh, really uncharted waters. Yeah. And uh, there's... Uh, there's so much enthusiasm in the air, but also confusion and confusion and anxiety, uh, because uh, you know Russia doesn't really want to be enemies with with the United States. It's just the it's just the posturing. Uh, but they uh, these people in the Kremlin, uh, they do want to stay in power as long as possible and by whatever means possible. But they also want to enjoy the luxuries. Uh, uh, that only the West can provide and uh, also be accepted as equals. They long for acceptance. They want to be equals, not just the evil guy who hacks everything and spies on everyone. Uh, well, we can settle for that for a little while, but what we really want to be is uh, equal to you guys. Uh, right. Where can people who want to read what you're writing in English generally find it? Uh, okay, I'm uh, reviewing the... Uh, the highlights of uh, Russian propaganda for the Moscow Times. It's a small English language publication based in Moscow. And uh, I'm sometimes contributing to, well, you, you can look up my name actually on, on, on Google and, and see what I'm up to. Uh, yeah. But uh, just keep in mind that I'm not the hockey player. No, but you, yeah. I think your, your Twitter is above his Twitter. Uh, yeah. All right, well, uh, thank you very much, Alexi. Uh, thank you, Aaron. That was uh, very illuminating. And that was the long-form podcast. Thank you very much to Alexi Kovalev for this interview. Uh, thank you to our sponsors this week, Penn State World Campus and MailChimp. Thanks to Mickey Capper, who edited this show. Thanks to our intern, Courtney Harrell. To my co-host, Max Linsky from Longform, and Evan Ratliff from The Atavist. We will be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. 
Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.